Gabia Tolakiti, you're very welcome to the podcast. Uh, Gabby, I know you're from Lithuania. You went to college there. I saw that you went to college in Helsinki. I, I'm curious, to, I've only ever been to Lithuania once on a very short visit. What was it like growing up there for you? Well, for me, it was brilliant. I really enjoyed living there. And um, I think I, I, I feel I was lucky because in Lithuania, education is very highly valued. And as a child who really loved school and loved studying, uh, I had endless opportunities there. Um, so, so from that perspective, it was wonderful. Uh, what were your uh, most cherished memories from your childhood? I enjoyed playing and running around with my brothers. I had four siblings, so we were five kids, and, and my mom insisted that we spend lots of time together. Um, and and we, we grew up in a small town, uh, so we, we spent a lot of time playing basketball, fishing, and you know cycling. I really, really enjoyed, enjoyed uh, doing that with my siblings. Sounds idyllic, it really does. Uh, curious why, how you ended up pursuing the study of neuroscience. I initially, during my teenage years, I fell in love with the genetics. Um, there was a field, field like up and coming, and there was a time when the sheep Dolly got cloned. So for me, it seemed like, wow, that's something amazing. I always had that mindset. I wanted to see, to understand how, how we function as, as individuals, as humans. And I thought maybe genes can explain that. But soon after I started studying in university, I studied molecular biology. I realized that actually neuroscience had, had a lot more to offer. And that was when I stumbled upon in the library at the book called Cognitive Neuroscience and started reading about methods and findings. I just was blown away. And, and that started my journey of neuroscience. I'm wondering how much this, the field of neuroscience has changed even in the last few years with technology, our understanding of neuroscience. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Oh, it's changed massively within the last two decades, but even within, if we take last decade or even last five years, there's been a lot of change. So for example, the findings have been made that in adult brain, there is new neurons being born. Uh, it was thought for a long time that, you know, there isn't much that changes structurally in the brain of an adult and it's only happening in us as, as small children. But now we know that's not true. And, and we, you know, there is lots of findings, very fascinating findings of so-called activity-dependent brain plasticity, showing that based on what you do with your brain, changes not only how the brain is wired, but change actual structures of your brain. So that, that's been one of the most fascinating findings to me. But also we know much more the kind of mechanisms underlying memory, decision-making, emotions, um, and we could actually explain it not only from which brain areas are involved, but what exactly neurons are doing to create that. So that that's really kind of you know um, been all in in the recent recent uh, decade, I would say. So you're telling us officially that you can teach an old dog new tricks. You can uh, if the old dog wants to learn new tricks. So there is, there is a lot of findings showing that actually various things change brain plasticity. So brain plasticity per se is a plastic process, depending on how much stress we experience, what relationships we have, and what things we do, our plasticity is either increased or decreased. And that either increases our chance to learn new things or keeps us stuck. So it's, mm. it's, it's still situational. Mm. Um, what I really want to do is talk to you. You, you. you spoke about resonant leadership and dissonant leadership and how uh, the, what, what they feel like and what they look like and how is one is more effective than the other, but how it's impacted by things like stress. And, and, I, and I think this is an area that's particularly relevant. Well, it's always relevant, but it's even more relevant, I think, today when everything's changing around us. How do we how do we adapt how do we form new habits? Because when we talk about brain plasticity, that would often be, a, I guess, a concern that adaptation, breaking down old habits, forming new ones, is a function of developing new neural path, pathways and brain uh, plasticity. Um, talk to me a little bit then about that about the, the different types of leadership and then maybe what we can do is 
tie the two together tie a little bit about yes how how, how we can grow into one and and then break some of those old habits and and, and if you don't mind i'd like to use some of our time for a little bit of free consulting because i've got so many bad habits i want to break and maybe <laughs> help me with them perfect well if we look at at these times we're going through in a lot of organizations they are experiencing a huge need to change and restructure and adapt and if you ask me which leadership is more beneficial in these times of change, um, although it's not black and white, but resonant leadership has a lot more to offer as it helps people to be in a state where change is possible. The reason being that both dissonant and resonant leaderships, they, they activate different neural networks in the team members. Uh, with dissonant leadership, or task-focused leadership, we activate so-called task-positive network, where we both leader and the team members get so focused on the task, that executing the task and achievement is what matters most. And there is time and place for that. Now, resonant leadership is relationship-based leadership, where leader truly cares about the members of a team. And in that sense, in order to, to do that, the leaders need to activate so-called default mode network in the brain. But strikingly, not only leaders activate that, when being people are being led with that leadership style, that activates their default mode networks as well, so they are much more capable to connect and collaborate as a team. In addition to that, um, when we experience resonant leadership in our brains, we produce the chemical called oxytocin. Oxytocin is, is also called the molecule of love, the molecule of trust, the molecule of attachment. So we produce oxytocin in multiple situations where we have consistent, reliable relationships, when we know what to expect from relationships. And when we feel people like really care about us, whether it's at work or in personal relationships. Now, there is some really interesting findings showing that oxytocin protects the brain from the negative effects of stress. So we know that during the stressful situations, brain plasticity is dramatically reduced, if not completely blocked. So when we are stressed, and especially if we experience chronic stress, we can't really change. We can't really um, create new habits. However, oxytocin is, if, if oxytocin is being present in the brain during stressful times, it negates those negative effects of stress. So even going through um, stressful and unpredictable times, we can still maintain brain plasticity, which would enable us to adapt better, change better, and learn, learn new things much more uh, effectively. So that's kind of big benefit why resonant leadership in these times is perhaps even more important than ever. I read somewhere, and please tell me if it's true, that cortisol, the stress hormone, can actually reduce levels of oxytocin. So therefore, when we're stressed, we really struggle to build empathy and connection with people. Is that true? And, and if so, what impact is that then in terms of when we're, which comes first, chicken or an egg? Because if we're stressed, is it more difficult then to be empathetic and caring about others? And, and if so, how do we, what can we do in terms of getting those levels of oxytocin back up again yes. to overcome? Yeah, it's a very tricky situation, yes. So stress naturally makes us all more dissonant. And by being more dissonant, we produce less oxytocin. Can we just start, for, for people who are maybe not familiar with the term, what do you mean when you say more dissonant? Basically, focused on the specific tasks, uh, unable to truly connect with other people, much more introverted than ourselves, and, and much more sort of, stressed about how to get things done much more specific mm -hmm. in how we want to get things done so when somebody says leave me alone i'm busy that's that's dissonant state yeah yeah but even they might not even say that they might say okay you need to do things that way the way i tell you and that's exactly the way you need to do it. that's also mm -hmm. dissonant style yeah. i'm curious mm -hmm. if we i really want to pursue the leadership with you but there's something that just popped into my head, which when you talk about empathy and then also dissonance style and task focused, I'm curious, we're watching at the moment people's different response to pandemic lockdowns across the world. And you're in the UK, 
uh, right now. And so it's, it's pretty relevant. And what I'm noticing is people's, because that's a stressful situation and people's response to it is either just, just follow the rules, do this. Mm -hmm. And then you have other people who have a very different style, a very different way of, of dealing with it, which is much more caring, compassionate, empathetic. I'm guessing it's the same, same thing playing out. Well, it, I think these styles come, it's, it's probably a bit more complex because they come from our inner beliefs, what the safety looks like. Ultimately, the more primitive centers of the brain, in particular amygdala, they need safety in the times of where there is lack of predictability. And some people learn to meet safety via meeting rules and say, okay, if you follow the rules, you're safe and all of us are safe. Other people say, uh, learn that we are safe if we are connected, if we're there for each other. And, and that's probably where that style comes in, comes in hand. Of course, that empathic style is more resonant. Mm. Uh, uh, however, it's still based on the past experiences and past and beliefs which yeah. were formed in the past, past times. One of the things I've noticed as well, and I read it somewhere and it kind of spoke to me, is that some people, safety is their, is their go-to place in a situation like this. Others they prioritize freedom above safety. The restrict, uh, free from restrictions is more important mm. to them and how they react to it. And I was just curious to know from a, a neuroscientist perspective, is, is there an explanation for that? Why one people's, person's default is security and other person's is, isn't that, it's something else. It's, it's... Yeah, well, well, probably I think these kind of, personal traits they're a bit harder to explain you know with specific neurons and brain networks but we all have very individual value hierarchy and some people during the times of lockdown were still able to meet their highest values while other people weren't so let's imagine if we take well for example i can share mine my top three values are my daughter amelia my relationship with my husband and my work and I was, you know, we were able to spend as much time as possible with my daughter and my husband. And I was still able to work as much, if not more than usual. So I could, I was still able to meet my top three values. Now, if you take things like traveling or meeting new people, they're still important, but definitely not at the very top. Now let's take somebody else for whom top three values are uh, new experiences, traveling, um, eating out for that person would really struggle and because they are not meeting those true important values they have they would want to break out of the rules because they can't be themselves who they truly are in these situations and needless to say for for those people the the lockdown has been a real torture so that's based on our individual differences however they can't quite be explained with the specific networks is you know, it's, 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 it's the whole, it's, it's a combination of various brain areas, various brain networks and brain chemistry that creates mm. those differences. Mm. So there's higher order values, I get that, but then there's something else which is more, I guess, existential, which is the need for security. And some people whose incomes aren't affected will have a very different response to people whose livelihoods have been taken away. And I think that's probably irrespective of the higher order values. I mean, Absolutely. They're, they're important, but there's something well, else going they, on. They come before anything else. So if, yeah. if, if you feel like, okay, like if you take those different brain regions, like as in here, you know, those higher values come from the, this wrinkly bit on the outside, the neocortex. And this is all, you know, self-fulfillment, relationships and so on. But of course, deep in the, within the brain, just there, regions called mammal brain centers where amygdala area we mentioned is part of they want to keep us safe now if you are not sure if you're going to be able to keep the house you're living in if you're not sure whether you'll have money to buy food in a month's time or next week even it, that area runs the show and then we become so-called in survival mode in survival mode, every single one of us are quite similar. We are very reactive, very fearful. Uh, we can easily get aggressive and argumentative. We, we almost become different different people in that state. And we call that amygdala dominant thinking. 
um, our thinking becomes very binary. This is good, this is bad, and so on. And in that state, needless to say, if, if, if a, lot, a lot of people have got to that state because they, they could no longer work, maybe they could no longer see the, the beloved family members and so on. And it's, you know, endless amount of triggers and perhaps worrying, worrying for safety and for life of yourself and other people puts us in that state as well. So anything that could kind of endanger our survival. Yeah. I, I didn't mean to talk about the, the pandemic, but it is a good primer actually for leadership in terms of the, the, the higher order functioning of, of our brain and what that means in terms of how we create an environment of teamwork and collaboration versus an environment of everyone for themselves. And then, and I do want to also talk to you about the habits and productivity and decision-making as well. Um, I, I, I think if we look at the higher order values and leadership, some people, and I'm just going from top ahead from people I've, I've known, some people are, 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 their higher order values are creating a collaborative environment. Others that may be just pure ego drive, they want to get to a particular position because they, they have a, an ego need for that. And then there's the stressful situations, the security we talked about, where maybe maybe my job is under threat, uh, either from external factors or maybe internal factors, a colleague and so on. And, and, and I'm just wondering how all of these play out in creating a stress reaction that just prevents everything we talked about. I had somebody a few weeks ago on the podcast talking about, uh, what, what was the term, is servant leadership. Now that sounds to me what you're talking about is that resonant leader. Very difficult to do unless the conditions are right. Would you agree or disagree? It's difficult to do in the stressful times. Yes, stress makes it much harder to stay this. And therefore, stress reduction and dealing with the big stressors, whatever stressors are possible to deal with, you know, some of them are out of our control, but some stresses are within the control zone. So dealing with them needs to be done first. Mm. Uh, and regular stress reduction activities need to accompany that as well in order to give a chance for our brains to stay in that resonant mode. Mm. And you can feel that in the air. You go into any large organization that's quarterly driven and the last week of the quarter or the last month of the year, when, when people are stressed because there's pressure, mm. It just, you, you could just feel it in the air. If you walked in off the street and you didn't know what month it was, you could probably tell from what you were picking up from people. And uh, I don't know how much people realize how, how they're screwing it up for themselves by creating that pressure. Well, when we're in that situation, when we get stressed out, our critical thinking is, in, is affected by it, is impaired in other words temporarily so we can't really assess whether it's being successful or not so we can't have that judgment on ourselves whether we are doing a good job or not only when we are relaxed and well rested we can see you know what there I you know it wouldn't it didn't work the way I wanted to probably would have worked better if I was paying more attention to people and listening what people were saying but at that time being stressed and feeling so much pressure, it's not possible. It's physically impossible to do. Yeah, yeah. So inner work, you know, on, on the stressors and of course handling whatever stressors are there has to precede the desired change yeah. in leadership. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about the, the, the book. I call it Why the Feck Can't We Change? I know if you look at the, the title, um, I've taken liberty with that. I'm sure other people would, would put a, a different letter in where that asterisk is. Um, what prompted you to write that? It came from my seminars I used to do in London. Uh, a few years ago, I did, uh, they've been attended for probably about 10,000 people in total, I used to do public talks in, in, in nightclubs when they, they weren't, you know, gigs and other things happening. And um, these talks turned out to be very successful. And people kept saying, wow, you know, like when learning, learning those neuroscience insights, I finally understand why am I stuck? I finally understand why my relationships have certain pattern. Finally understand why for so long haven't been able to change my habits 
why you know my certain personality traits are ruling and running the show and so on and so forth uh, but initially a lot of my clients were saying you know what's wrong with me why can't i change what's what's wrong with me and i learned in neuroscience especially a combination of neuroscience and coaching is a very very powerful approach to that because from neuroscience offers us answers of how our brain functions and why we do get stuck in particular patterns and what requires to happen in the brain in order for us to change them. Yeah, you need coaching though as well. It's not enough just to know why we are the way we are and why we, we can't change or why we struggle to change, I should say. Yeah, for majority of people, I think people are at the, you know, different stages in different times. So sometimes for people getting certain insights to understand themselves, is sufficient for them to kind of process it for a bit, but for actually really create a lasting change, support is needed, which coaching often is, is one of the best ways to get that structured structured support to um, create change. Yeah, I'm curious, um, weight is something I've often struggled with over years. And I have found at times that when I decide to, to lose weight, I, I sometimes, no problem, I can, go stay focused for six, eight weeks, drop a stone. And then other times, and it's usually the majority of times where I struggle to get past three days. Any insights into why, why that is, why at times you can do it, no problem, because we all know how to do it. But then we struggle with the process or with the execution, with the, the discipline. And uh, if, you, if you could sell the, if you could bottle the answer to that, there is only that far the discipline can go. Willpower is limited. Mm. We firstly need to look on why you're eating food that makes you gain weight in the first place. Okay, what, are, what needs are you trying to meet with that? Because any habit um, is serving us in certain way. We're meeting certain needs with that. And a lot of my clients, I'm not necessarily, uh, you know, saying for you, they eat because they're stressed. They eat because they kind of are uh, either, you know, they, they, they try to escape certain, certain situations, certain emotional states. And unless we offer the brain better way to meet the same needs, you're, you're naturally, when you're tired and when there is a limited amount of time, you'll naturally fall back into that. So in other words, we can't just get rid of habits and willpower ourselves through it. Uh, we have to firstly realize what exactly am I meeting with that habit? What could be better ways to replace it? And when that there is a trigger, certain emotional state or, or you know, being tired or whatever that is, um, offering and practicing often enough the other alternative, which would meet exact same need for long enough. Now, of course, in certain times, you wouldn't have that trigger happening that much. So for example, maybe you're, you're well rested, things are going well, you get enough sleep, and then there isn't, there isn't that same amount of levels of stress. So that need for those kind of comfort foods is not being triggered. And then it's much, much easier to stick to better nutrition. However, when the, there is a pressure for time, tight deadlines, and stress builds up, we slip back into it because you, your brain has learned that it's a very quick way to meet specific needs. And it takes regular practice on meeting those needs in better ways for you in order for your brain to relearn that. And what are the typical kind of needs uh, that we're meeting through bad habits that are not good for us? Usually it's change in emotional state. So we, all of us have certain habits we fall into when we are anxious, when we are stressed, when we are lonely, when we are unfulfilled. My, my bad habit is playing games on my phone. If I'm anxious and stressed, my default is like going and play this silly game like a Tetris-like analog on my, on, on my phone. And, um, and I know that it's kind of a bit of a vicious, becomes a vicious cycle because if I'm anxious about presentation next day, if I play a game, I wouldn't be preparing enough for the presentation, right? So then I kind of say, okay, well, I know, I know, you know, you're anxious. So I'll do breathing exercise, which is very effective to reduce anxiety. Or I will go to my husband and say, could you listen to my presentation and give me feedback? 
And by me presenting and getting hopefully positive feedback, I my anxiety levels are reduced. So I need to tweak and tackle exactly what is causing my desire to play those silly games on my phone. And then, sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut across you. Is it not a case of just in, in some instances of replacing pain with pleasure in their terms of your presentation? Okay, you know, and asking somebody for feedback. That's not always a comfortable experience that, and we want to avoid it versus the game, which is fun. Yeah, uh, it, is, it, is, it is replacing pain for pleasure, but at the same time, it's causing pain long-term. So right, so so the part of part of changing habit is to offer your mammal brain long term vision, because if you show your mammal brain that you eating comfort foods long term is going to cause you pain, it can cause you health issues, it can cause you clarity in thinking, and and you, you know you might uh, not be able to get as much done. It might cause you other other. Um, issues in the future, although it offers you comfort and pleasure short term. So what we need to do, we need to write what are the drawbacks of that specific habit, games for me, comfort food for you. Um, and both in any areas you care about, right? So for example, work is one of my top three values. So what are the drawbacks of me still keeping that habit of pay, playing silly games on my phone? A, you know, I wouldn't do as good job as I could for my for my clients. B, I would set a bad example for my daughter. C, you know, I would be then in a bad mood and might interfere like that might affect my relationship with my husband. And keep going, keep going. Like you know, more and more drawbacks we can find in the areas that are important to you. You'll suddenly start changing perception in your brain, and that pleasurable experience of playing a game. Is suddenly your brain is kind of feeling a bit dubious about, oh, is it pleasure or not, right? And mm. then when you build up a lot of benefits of you doing the hard thing. So for me, sitting with presentation, even if I get anxious, uh, what, what are the long-term benefits? Of course, my work will become better and better. I'll get more and more clients over long-term. I'll set good working habits that are for my daughter and so on. So we look long-term and suddenly it, it changes it, it, it goes from, you know, avoiding pain, jumping to pleasure to actually, well, actually, maybe that's not that painful. It's painful short term, but it will cause good benefits long term. And the game maybe is not that pleasant after all. It's pleasant short term, but lots of drawbacks, mm. medium and longer term. And suddenly the brain reduces that pull to that habit. And if we practice alternative enough to reduce anxiety, for example, or any other unwanted emotions, mm. like with breathing exercise, it's actually quite quick and effortless. It's much easier than, you know, presenting, of course, to my husband and asking for feedback. It reduces anxiety and lo no longer, the, the trigger is no longer there after I just do that for two, three minutes. And I can carry on with the presentation and push through that ambiguous part. It's interesting because that, what that feels like to me is for, for a number of years, I did running like half marathons, that kind of thing. Um, one marathon, just one, never again. But, but it was interesting. And I had that experience all the time, which was going out for a run was a real pain. Mm -hmm. But pleasure was on the far side of pain. That when you got to a certain length, for me, it was around 40 minutes. Then the endorphins would kick in and you get what they call the runner's high and you just feel mm -hmm. amazing but you had to go through the pain barrier and, and maybe, yeah, there, you, you can't get there. And maybe, is, is that what you're saying? Is that with, with endorphins, is to embrace yes. the pain? Yeah, well, with endorphins, yes, of course, you have to go through actual pain because endorphins in the brain have been designed. If you were hunting in hunter-gatherer times uh, and you were hurt to push through that pain to get back to safety, that's the role of endorphins, which we kind of now tweak and use in, in, in our leisurely hobbies, right? Um, but, but with other things, perhaps, yes, you, you, you might not necessarily need to push through pain. You firstly need to reduce the pain and then carry on with the task, but reduce the pain in the ways that are not that detrimental to you. Mm -hmm. um, 
So for example, for me, that was just breathing exercise. It's not painful to do breathing exercises. It requires little effort. Or if you're feel, feeling lonely, making a call to your mom or your friend, that's not painful. It's, it's equally pleasurable, but probably is more beneficial than eating, uh, let's say, a healthy snack. So offering other alternatives to meet the same need and still kind of, you know, change that emotional state if needed before we get on with what, what we need to get on with. Tell me, when you go into organizations uh, as a coach, speaker, trainer, what are the typical reasons why you've been asked in? What are they looking to, for help with? Majority of times is, is, is asking seminars on neuroscience, either on changing habits, leadership, and kind of pointing out why even, you know, all this expensive leadership, leadership training in the stressful times doesn't pay out. We still fall back into the old, old uh, styles. Now, emotional well-being is also a very, very common seminar I'm asked to deliver as more and more organizations, they start to truly care about well-being of the staff. Uh, and the kind of recent trend is neurodiversity. Uh, I'm often asked, uh, you know, about by inclusion and, and diversity teams to deliver some neuroscience insights on, on, on that. Talk aspect. to me about that. Um, that's quite topical at the moment. Yeah, so, so, so it's, it, it depends. What we mean by neurodiversity can be quite a lot of different things. But uh, a lot of organizations end up having a lot of people with Asperger's, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, mood disorders such as depression, anxiety, um, panic attacks, and so on. So what I do in my seminars, I took what happens in the brain in each of those specific neurotypes we call, and what environment is the most beneficial for them, what working style is the most beneficial for them. And for somebody who has um, Asperger's or somebody who has ADHD, they would be very different things. So for a person with ADHD, having a lot of short tasks and lots of accountability and, and support would, would make them perform much, much better. And they would feel much more fulfilled, but th that requires a lot of variety and support when the, if the project is long-term, it requires support and accountability to get there. For somebody with Asperger's, now sticking to long-term project is not an issue at all, but the issue could be uh, over-focusing on details and taking much, much longer to execute the project if there is a lot of other competing needs. So, so having, having a support and helping them to sort of see a bigger picture and to stop eventually and, and start working on something else before things are absolutely 100% perfect if the time pressures do not allow that, that's needed. So different, different neurotypes would have different gifts and different challenges, but that's quite team specific and project specific. Therefore, I, I kind of tell them what happens in the brain of, of those different, different people and what, what do the challenges therefore they struggle with and what are their biggest strengths. And then, then, then teams kind of come up with their own strategies and ways around it. And sometimes they, they refer to me, um, people for coaching as a result of it, you know, either managers or people with neurodiverse types for them to figure out what would work for them best so they can communicate to their managers. You mentioned that work is one, it's in your top three priorities. Uh, what gives you the greatest sense of fulfillment in your work? Helping people to understand themselves better. Really, when I when kind of sharing neuroscience insights or in the coaching sessions or in my lectures at university, when I see that there is that light bulb moment when person says, oh, that's why I do that. Or that, that, that's why I've been struggling with that. There is that kind of insight of true deep mechanism within, which helps people not only to understand themselves better, but accept themselves better and therefore do things in the way that works for them better and creates more fulfillment. That gives me the biggest joy and pleasure. 
one of the challenges often with people with a with a specific expertise is that we, we call it the, the 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 mechanics car or you might you've heard a physician heal thyself for if you want to find out the the rustiest uh, car that has the least amount of maintenance it's usually the mechanics mm. right in terms of your own self how do you find you leverage your own knowledge your own work to help yourself is that something that's easy to do or is it a case of i'm very good with others but when it comes to myself it's it's harder because it's it's you i think it's been a gradual process and a lot of insights i share uh both in my talks and coaching sessions are the ones which worked for me best so it's definitely i think it's more comes like of course i had to work through certain things to get to the place i am one of them i, I i've never been diagnosed with adhd but as a child i was very impulsive and i see my daughter being exactly like that so i'd be walking on the side of the road and suddenly i would get an idea to get to the other side of the road and i would just run across the road it wouldn't even look and i had to teach myself to suppress my impulsivity and make better decisions. Now, as an adult, that's what I needed to do to become a better driver. My mom had the same, the same issue with impulsivity, so there clearly is genetic, genetic streak to it. As children, we had so many car crashes. We, we even flat re refused to get in the car with my mom because she would just be so impulsive that you know she would just sort of bump into things and things like that. But I kind of had to teach myself to create a gap between the impulse and an action. And I could see yields in my career, in you know, safety of my family when I drive, in my parenting consistency, in, in my relationship with my husband of needing, learning to do that. But that wasn't something what kind of yeah. came very easy. Sure. It required consistent yeah. training and retraining. So give us some, uh, maybe an example of that from the adult life and how you overcome it and also maybe some insight into where impulsivity comes from from a neuroscience basis well impulsivity is a term for quite a few different things but part of it is different brain chemistry so if we take a brain chemical called dopamine which gives the pleasure um, one of the findings is that people who are more impulsive, they have lower levels of dopamine. Therefore, they need to shift activities more frequently to meet the same levels of dopamine. So, so they're constant switching and, and do, doing new tasks, browsing media, uh, social media, and, and, and having constant change triggers dopamine. Change in general like uh, is, is a very good to trigger dopamine. And people who are impulsive, they are much more drawn to distractions such as TikTok, games on the phone. Stop, stop, you're killing me, you're killing me, <laughs> you're yeah. killing me. <laughs> and understanding that, so for example, I don't, I never have a phone in the room when I work because I know if I did, it would be unnecessary temptation. If, if it requires an effort for me going two flights of stairs to get the phone, um, it would be much harder to fool myself. Oh, I'm just going to check my Facebook just mm -hmm. in case there's something important there, right? So, so understanding who you are and what needs you are meeting in that way, then, then of course, can help you to create better strategies to achieve productivity you mm -hmm. need. Yeah, and has modern life then with social media, has that conditioned us to be more impulsive or is it just a case of the impulsivity is there they just bring it to the surface well social media and that constant um access to quick pleasure in general kind of um desensitized our brain to the more long-term pleasures because we know with dopamine is the 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 neurons that have dopamine the sort of uh, the connection between them gets desensitized if we get loads of dopamine. So that we know that from people who uh, have used recreational drugs, they become desensitized to simple pleasures such as having a piece of chocolate or watching a f funny movie, right? 
those things become less pleasant to them after have used the recreational drugs as opposed to before. Now with time, that gets back if people don't use recreational drugs anymore, the, the synapses get back to normal, but it takes quite long time. Now when we are constantly browsing and having that constant changing pleasant experiences like social media, TikTok, and you know, reading articles as opposed to books and things like that, our synapses are getting more dopamine than they used to get. So the things that used to give us a lot of pleasure, such as sitting down and reading a novel, they feel a bit less pleasant because there isn't that constant shifting element to it. Um, so, so therefore, for a lot of people, um, we do become sort of shorter focused and struggle to sit with the task for long enough period because our brain's been desensitized with that constant uh, bombarding of dopamine. Mm. Okay, so I get the idea of if you, for example, leave the phone downstairs at, when you go to bed, therefore you can't pick it up the very first thing when you wake mm -hmm. up. I get that. What about when it comes to work where everything is, it has to be close at hand? You've got a, a laptop and so now you have access to the entire internet. Uh, every, you know, how many millions of videos are uploaded every second? What are some of the tips, uh, tools that you can use in those instances to be more productive and stay, stay more focused? Well, there is quite a few. So one of them, you can actually block certain things on your laptop when you're working. Uh, so there, 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 there are softwares that allow you to do that. Uh, secondly, is sort of working kind of having specific intervals for work and for procrastination, right? So instead of merging them together, saying, okay, I'll work for 45 minutes and for 15 minutes, I just do whatever I want. It could be playing a game, it could be browsing social media, whatever that is. So that tends to produce better results because we compartmentalize. It's unrealistic to expect us to be really focused on work all day long. That's not how our brains function. So instead of kind of, you know, passively drifting into it once our willpower is reduced, we can create more structured approach. You're saying, okay, like, and, and that so-called Pomodoro technique, which I, which I discuss in my chapter on productivity, which helped me greatly with long-term projects such as writing my book, writing my PhD thesis in the past. I would set specific time where I can only write. I couldn't even research articles. So I say, okay, for this, let's say 25 minutes or 35 minutes or whatever that is, I'll just write. And I'll make a note what I need to find, but I can't even Google or do anything. And once I finish writing, then I would, I, I get a reward and my reward would be 15 minutes doing whatever I want. Okay, it literally can be whatever you want. And then for whatever tasks you set yourself, it could be another Pomodoro cycle could be about finding the relevant research article I, I needed, or it could be further writing, or it could be replying emails, it could be other work related tasks. After if I focus, but it has you have to think about it beforehand. So you don't allow your brain basically to, to take you on the on the tangent. Once you completed that you again get your another 10-15 minutes of doing whatever you like. So that tends to work better because we have limited amount of willpower. So when we try to just power through really long periods of time of working, we experience so-called ego depletion, where willpower is reduced. And then we go on the binge eating, binge watching telly, binge, um, you know, kind of procrastination. And it's much harder to get out of that back to productivity. Okay. So I want to I zone in on this one because I think this will be common for a lot of people, maybe not the the negative aspects of it, but certainly the practice is you've had a long, hard day at work. You come home, now that glass of wine when you come home is the sweetest thing. And even though I've, this is the weirdest thing. I've often had that. And as I'm drinking the wine, I'm kind of going, you know what? It's not even great wine. I'm, you know, it's, it's not, it's not it's such a pleasurable taste. It's the idea of it. Mm. It's weird. But it's, it's almost, and my wife would say to me, you know, because she is a highly disciplined person and she's able to go, 
you know, I, I won't have that. And she'll say, okay, I'm stopping alcohol for a hundred days. And she'll do it, no question. Or she'll say, I've put on uh, two grams of weight. <laughs> and, and she'll say, okay, for the next five days, I'm not gonna eat any cheese. And I just can't get my head into that. I can't understand it because yeah. so it in the moment- like to you and to your wife, it's a different task because it's it's not you know stopping drinking alcohol for one person is not the same as stopping drinking alcohol for another person it's completely different task based on what your brain is like based on your very individual brain chemistry and some of us are much more prone to addictive behaviors you know so kind of uh, those behaviors that we, we can't really stop doing them uh, but it sounds like your your wife doesn't doesn't have that um, chemistry therefore for her it's, it's the same as you know for you maybe I don't know what kind of example to give the, of the of the task that would be actually easy for you to do which might be hard for you to do for your wife there's there's there's, there's all, a few yeah so we all are highly disciplined in some things and not so disciplined in other things but when we compare with one another that's when we struggle because we're like comparing oranges and apples as the saying goes, right? So it's a different, although it's the same task, but it's a different, different, it requires very different levels of energy and brain processes for different people. Yeah, I often feel it's weird because I will literally, if, if, if I have a, I can have a goal, I want to lose some weight. And I, and I know it's there in my mind, but it's like, it's almost like I'll be zombie-like. And I'll make my way and have a square of chocolate or a glass of wine or maybe eat snack late at night, even though I, and I know sometimes here's what happens. I'm looking at it going, I know I should be doing this. Ah, oh, what the hell? And it's, it's almost like your brain is hijacked by something else that just throws out everything that you want to do for that momentary uh, satisfaction that you well, get brain has a lot of different agendas and they're competing with one another and at that moment in time that that's winning because the other needs probably are met successfully or that specific habits habit meets a lot of needs at that given time maybe you're tired maybe you're stressed maybe you need a moment to unwind and relax and your brain has learned that by having that glass of wine, by having that cheese, you meet that. You meet that relaxation. So perhaps you need to go back and ask, how did I get that tired in the first place? Maybe I need to tweak those former habits that follows. Maybe I need to go to bed earlier so I'm not as tired. So to need a snack to kind of, you know, uh, you know, give myself some energy so it, it does require looking at the bigger picture mm. in order to create a lasting change everything i've heard from you so far on this seems to be about that you don't deal with the activity because that's just an outcome of a particular brain function but you plan or you build other activities around it that distract you or puts the object in a different room uh, or where maybe you might have a square of chocolate because you're bored then find something else to do to break the boredom but it's never about an activity about how to put the chocolate down it's about what you can do so you're not picking it up in the first place do is, is it as simple as that because i know it's not no, well, it's a combination it's a combination because if you kind of change your perception about that piece of chocolate you would be able to put it down if you suddenly realize you're eating this chocolate you're not giving yourself pleasure but actually you are causing yourself long-term illness you would be able to put it on no time. I had that with the with the pastries. I used to love pastries, but when I worked out that often they triggered migraines for me. I have would have no difficulty, you know, if, if you brought me really the most amazing pastry you could find in Ireland, and I would look at it, and part of me would be really drawn to eat it, but I know that I'd have migraines soon after, and I wouldn't be able to give an interview and do my work, and I would need to, you know, to push through with that migraine for the two mm. days. 
I would easily be able to put it down. So what do you make then? Per perception on the thing, but part of it is helping your brain to firstly validating that you're meeting certain certain needs via doing that, and those needs need to be met one way or another. If you don't meet those needs, you would be being be pulled back to that. So you need to meet those needs as well. So that would reduce the desire to do that. Um, mm. What do you make yeah. of the idea of creating different mental associations as well? Because you you you, you mentioned exactly, the idea that's of exactly the chocolate. what I mentioned, yeah. Yeah, and I saw somebody once. He was trying to help somebody. He was a, a hypnotist. And he was trying to help somebody lose weight, and what he got them to do was imagine the chocolate cake. This person had a particular thing about chocolate cake, mm -hmm. and imagine it. But now imagine it with worms and spiders crawling out of it. And created this kind of disgust association with yeah, the. That's another cake. way to basically trigger uh, pleasure into pain. Mm. That's another way to kind of change that. But I, I personally prefer kind of using more tweaking to what works for you long term, because then you can do that with any any habits. And it's to me, it seems more genuine approach to do it. But if for somebody looking at it in that way is required that that's mm. another way to change that yeah. perception yeah I, i'm i'm conscious gabrielle we are up against the time this is a topic i could talk all day long about it's absolutely fascinating um people want to contact you what's the best way to contact you uh, probably uh, either email or linkedin and you could find my my contact details on my website mybrainduringtheday.com it's one my, word. My, my brain, brain during the day. That's a great website. All right. And and, and my email is dr.gabia, my first name, at mybraindoingtheday.com. Okay. I'll, I'll put those up on the yeah. video itself so people can see those and I'll put it in the comments field. I just, I know it's conscious and I know you got to run to another meeting. So I'm going to let you go. Uh, uh, Gabia Tolakita, thank you very much for being my guest today. Fascinating topic Brilliant. and your insights were wonderful. It was a pleasure talking to you about these topics. Really fascinating. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you very much.